Then I ran a second time and I did much better. We got millions and millions more. Trumpism, either a, a second Trump administration in which it's, it's Donald Trump without restraint, right? Or we would have somebody like DeSantis, who people describe as the smarter Trump, right? He's more disciplined, he's more calculated, he's more strategic in the way he does this, much less impulsive. I think the scale of the danger is, is really hard to fathom. They're openly talking about how they will overturn election results, about how they will delegitimize them, about installing puppets into state governments. They are talking about embedding this vision of white patriarchal Christian nationalism um, in the schools, in our politics. No line between the GOP and the evangelical right. It's deeply authoritarian, and they're saying that only one side can win. This is what American fascism looks like. Rave of Roe versus Wade. It's like taking Normandy Beach, but our mission is to get to Berlin. This is the beginning. This is nothing less than an epic struggle for the future of this country between dark and light. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth, and now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. Last year, we spoke about the nightmarish near-miss of the Republican insurrection on the 6th of January. A violent attempt to prevent democracy from taking its course. But it turns out this wasn't a moment of madness or an aberration. It was emblematic. Led by Donald Trump, America's Republican movement has abandoned democracy. A test of loyalty to the party now requires you to believe that the 2020 election was stolen and it requires you to commit to rigging the 2024 vote in the Republicans' favour. This is a profound moment in world history. The oldest party in the world's leading democracy no longer believes in, well, in democracy. So is the USA still even a democratic country? And was it ever? This is Doomsday Watch the death of democracy. Democracy is on life support in the United States. In our very first episode, I spoke to Professor Brian Class, an American political scientist who started his career studying weak and failing democracies in the developing world. And now he's trying to figure out if democracy in his own country is going to survive. And if it fails, what does that mean for democracy worldwide? January 6th was a, a pivotal moment where Republicans basically had one of two choices to make. They could either break with Donald Trump and draw a line under his presidency and commit to the forces of pro-democracy movements, or they could double down on Donald Trump and go all in with authoritarianism. And unfortunately, they have chosen to do the latter. I also spoke last year to Idris Carloon, political correspondent at The Economist, about the increasing attempts by Republicans to take control of America's electoral systems. Well, I think a year ago, people thought that it was very pessimistic to say that the party was going in this anti-democratic direction, that the January 6th committee had not yet started its hearings. People thought that uh, basically there might be a change within the Republican Party politics. And I think that what we've seen a year later is that despite the fact that Trump is clearly under an immense amount of legal jeopardy. We see that uh, Republicans are still very much supportive of him. What we saw throughout the primaries that have just been held um, is that Donald Trump still exerts enormous sway over who Republicans actually pick to represent them. Trump isn't going anywhere. In fact, he's arguably more powerful than ever in the conservative movement. So much so that there is now a litmus test in the Republican Party that basically tests whether you are a diehard MAGA Republican, and that is whether you'll lie about the 2020 election. 
So it's now the case that if you will not lie about the 2020 election, if you'll tell the truth about it, your political career within the Republican Party will die. A jubilant Donald Trump has now defeated 80% of those here on Capitol Hill who dared to vote for his impeachment. Now, as far as um, where have we gone to in terms of legislation that would make it easier, I think, for Donald Trump to have won in 2020, even though he didn't win the majority of votes, I think that we've edged even closer to that outcome. There's a structural reason why the Republicans can do this. Here's Brian. One of the longstanding problems with American elections is that they're conducted on a state-by-state basis. So when you think of a presidential election, it's actually 50 state elections. Most functioning democracies have some sort of centralized system that sets the rules across the country. It's not true in the United States. And that means that the state officials are extremely important because they can put their fingers on the scale and adjust rules, adjust outcomes potentially even, depending on how close the election is. I was just in Arizona reporting on the primary that was held there on August 2nd. And there, the three candidates who are going to be in position for certifying the 2024 election, the governor, the secretary of state, the attorney general, Republicans picked people who all agree that the last election was stolen. You know, the secretary of state uh, nominee for the Republicans is a guy named Mark Fincham, who was, at least back in 2014, a member of the Oath Keepers militia. He was present at the January 6th attack, although he maintains he didn't enter the Capitol. And he's previously said that if he were in charge of the elections, as the Secretary of State is in Arizona in 2020, Donald Trump would have won. And Arizona isn't the only state which is like this. And so the constitutional crisis that emerges in 2024, if Trump were to run and lose again, um, could be even larger than the one that we saw in 2020. You honed in earlier on on three really key swing states, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. If I'm not mistaken, that's enough to change who is president of the USA based on, on the last presidential election. What would we need to see in those states to know that the Democrats are in real trouble, not because of the vote level, but because of the people who are going to be tallying the vote and their attitude to the idea of sort of free and fair elections. I think we'll see, uh, like we saw in 2020, that in the months before the election count, Trump was setting the stage for his Stop the Steal movement. Actually, it's very interesting. During his Republican primary in 2016, he also began saying that people were, were planning to steal primary election from him and in favor of Ted Cruz. And obviously, he previewed that line of attack uh, against Hillary Clinton as well. So I, I think you'll you'll start to see those signs again. Most of it will actually happen before the votes are counted. So aiming to reduce the voter turnout among communities that are reliably democratic. There's very good research that shows that this has been a longstanding approach by Republicans to suppress votes among particularly minority communities like African Americans. For example, one study used anonymized phone data where they looked at basically how long people were standing in a queue to vote. And they found that in African American majority neighborhoods, the queues were six times longer than in white neighborhoods. Now, on top of that, I hate to even believe that this is possible, whether the vote count itself will have integrity. If you recall in 2020, Donald Trump picked up the phone and called the Georgia Secretary of State, a Republican, and said, find me 11,000 more votes. And, you know, thankfully for American democracy in the world, that Republican said no. But the point is that, you know, this is something where what happens if there's political pressure in 2024 and instead of saying no, they say yes. This egregious abuse of the law is going to produce a backlash, the likes of which nobody has ever seen. If Trump is not on the ballot, is this still going to be the same problem? This is the really depressing bit about U.S. politics, is that because of the way the party, the Republican Party, responded to January 6th, they've gone all in on Trumpism. People have had this model that the Republican Party was in a bit of a fever. The fever would break and the party would snap back to something like 2012 when Mitt Romney was in charge of the party. Um, It's not going to be like that. What's happening instead is that you have people who have a voter base that's been conditioned to be Trump-like. But you also have a, a new slate, a new generation of candidates who are taking the Trump playbook and executing it more effectively. And the obvious standard bearer uh, for that scenario is Ron DeSantis, who's the, currently the governor of Florida. The governor 
Florida open for business, pushing for schools to be open and fighting mask mandates to the delight of supporters and the ire of Democrats. Yeah, so Ron DeSantis is clearly cut from the same cloth as Donald Trump. He recently chartered a plane to stick some migrants on, migrants who were told they were about to be rehoused somewhere, basically given these false hopes. And he just flew them to Martha's Vineyard, this place where uh, a lot of sort of rich people vacation, very democratic part of the United States. It was a political stunt. He used human beings as a prop. This is not a normal politician. He's somebody who has the same sort of view that politics is about authoritarian entertainment. And I think that his his appeal is that he's able to triangulate between the various factions of the Republican Party very well. When you look at um, his response to January 6th, he's not been very vocal in saying that the election has been stolen. And a lot of the people who are sick of Trump within the Republican Party say uh, at least he doesn't have the sort of legal baggage. And I think that the likely successor to the Trump movement is Trumpism without Trump. And that means that whether Trump is the candidate or not, his successor will be somebody who enacts a similar style of politics, potentially even more dangerous because it's not so brazen and bold and stupid. I mean, you know, when you think about that 11,000 vote phone call asking to find 11,000 votes, this is amateur hour and DeSantis or somebody like him will no longer be amateur hour and that makes him potentially even more dangerous than, than Donald Trump himself. This isn't just about how America runs its elections. The American hard right, now controlling the Republican Party, wants to remodel society itself. They've polled the lower vote in five of the six most recent presidential elections, but still they've managed to restructure many of the key institutions that govern America. Gerrymandering political districts, imposing extreme restrictions on immigration, and most important of all, securing a Republican supermajority on the Supreme Court, where justices, once appointed, serve for life. In June 2022, the Republican appointees on the court overturned a half-century-old constitutional right to abortion. It didn't matter that this had no democratic or popular mandate the Supreme Court justices answer only to their consciences. As the seconds ticked down to the ruling, the anticipation for activists on both sides was almost unbearable. And when the news broke, abortion opponents fell to their knees in disbelief. And then joy. This is widely seen as the most consequential ruling for a generation. One of the very few times the court has removed rights. The Dobbs decision, the decision overturning Roe, was a lightning bolt. There are a lot of people, a lot of well-informed people, who did not believe that, that the court would really do it. That's Sarah Posner, an investigative journalist who's devoted her life to tracking the activities of America's right-wing Christian movement. You know, I've written for years about how this was the goal and the court was going to do it, right? A lot of people have written that, um, but a lot of people did not believe it. And I think that when the court finally did it, you know, stories like that, I think, are really waking people up to what, you know, the, the real dangers of the right here. I am Jamal Green. I am a law professor at Columbia Law School. I specialize in constitutional law. I'm also the author of a book called How Rights Went Wrong. I wanted Jamal to help me understand how this Supreme Court, something that in most democracies is a relatively anonymous technical body, has been allowed to become a highly politicized tool of extreme partisanship. I think the structure of the U.S. Supreme Court is an important part of the nature of its power and the feeling that its members are really deeply involved in politics in ways that are globally unusual. So the court understands itself to have the power to invalidate legislation, to have the power to strike down executive acts of various kinds. And, and the features are life tenure, which is a, a, an extreme outlier in the world, a small number of justices. So nine justices on a, on a high court is the smallest number of, of any of the top 30 or so countries in population. And every justice hears every case. So they sit what's called in bank in law. They don't sit in panels. Uh, and so what that means is that if you get ideological capture on the court so that it's really on one side of the ideological spectrum, then you can really predict 
with a fair amount of certainty where the court's going to come out on a set of issues. You know exactly who the justices are. And, and when you have that kind of certainty, that affects the kind of cases that are brought to the courts. Uh, and so what we've seen is in the last several years, particularly with uh, the replacement of uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy with uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and especially the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's uh, very much on the left side of the political spectrum, with Amy Coney Barrett, who's very much on the right side, you have a predictably conservative court. Uh, it's out of step with where mainstream politics is in the U.S., but maybe even more important than that is that it's a kind of buffet for conservative lawyers to bring cases to the court, and the court has been aggressive in taking up kind of hot-button political topics, whether it's abortion or affirmative action or gun rights or various um, administrative practices having to do with COVID pandemic and so forth. So the Supreme Court finds itself very much in the center of our political life. And that is, I think, itself a, a bit of a change over the last several decades. Forces are determined to take this country backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to the very soul of this country. Oh, I think that there are huge threats to democracy in America right now. I mean, you and I are speaking a mere day, or is it days, after Joe Biden gave a speech, I think it was last night, calling Trumpism semi-fascism. Professor Sarah Churchwell is the preeminent historian of America's fascist tendency. She doesn't shy away from that F word. Instead, she sets it in its accurate historical context. All these aspects of what we're looking at now do have deep roots in American history. American fascism is nothing new. It just wasn't in the White House before. And this is what it looks like. And it is a modern version of it. It's not identical to the interwar period. Uh, but, you know, we don't fight wars the way we did in the interwar period. So it looks different. But the fundamental aspects of it are completely consistent. America fought a war against the secessionist southern states that wanted to preserve the institution of slavery. But somehow, this legacy was celebrated by many on the American right. It's this romanticized view of antebellum slavery that said that it was a benevolent paternalistic system in which the slaveholders were gentle and kind and benevolent, and that the South went to war for a noble cause, which was to protect this gentle way of life. That became known as the lost cause version of the Civil War. It was a version of revisionist history that instantly began when, the war, when they lost to save face. Instead of admitting the truth, which is that they went to war aggressively to protect and expand slavery across the United States. I suppose an aspect of this lost cause is the way in which, having lost the war, the white elite in the South made sure that they won the politics, by which I mean, you know, they excluded African-Americans from any kind of electoral power, but also you, you actually had the Ku Klux Klan and the lynchings and, and effectively mass murders. Absolutely. It was about maintaining the structures of slavery, even if slavery itself was outlawed. They stood up and said over and over again, we're doing this because black people are not equal, the equals of white people. They should not be voting. They should not be in government. Um, and, and then they, they also passed a, a raft of laws that would effectively disenfranchise black Americans when they weren't allowed to do it directly. They would just do it indirectly. For Jamal Green, an absolutist streak where binary decisions echo the draconian laws of the lost cause South are evident in today's right-leaning Supreme Court. So the, the story of how the U.S. gets to where it's kind of absolute stance on rights, in my view, really runs through our, our, our particular history with race. OK, so you have a right not to face racial discrimination. Uh, and that's what it means to hold a right is is the government is doing something really, really bad or doing something really, really pathological. And over time, we develop this kind of binary system where if the government's doing something really pathological, it means a right is involved. Um, and if the government is not, uh, then you give kind of absolute deference to the government. So it's a kind of on-off switch um, in U.S. constitutional discourse for really historically contingent reasons. When we get to the 1960s, 
and lots and lots of people across lots of different uh, walks of life are making claims about rights. Um, we have a burgeoning women's rights movement, second wave feminism, uh, the sexual revolution, rights to government benefits, welfare benefits, and so forth, a whole different understanding of freedom of speech. It's really a rights explosion. And our courts still deal with this really wide and complex range of rights claims as if it's a kind of binary. It's either you have a right and the government's doing something terrible, or you don't have a right and the government gets to do whatever you want. And so we all end up fighting about what gets to be called a right instead of taking the posture that courts in many other countries take, which is in a kind of prima facie sense, there are lots of rights people can claim. The job of a court um, always has to be to manage that conflict in some way, um, to try to recognize and take seriously the kind of value pluralism in the modern world, but understanding that they have to be managed and mediated in various ways. Decisions like the overturning of Roe v. Wade show how this just isn't happening, with an absolutist Supreme Court fixated on literal constitutional interpretations. The idea of basing legal decisions in the 21st century on a specific meaning drafted in the 18th century, in a slave economy where women had no rights, is profoundly disturbing. But that's exactly what the Republicans on the Supreme Court seek to do, a doctrine they call originalism, based on the idea that they can return to the original intentions of the framers of the Constitution. The zeal for a kind of originalism by many people on the right side of the judicial and political spectrum relies on an assumption that at some point in the past, our rights were fixed for us. Um, we see that kind of rhetoric um, all the time. That what it means to have constitu a constitution is that at some point, a supermajority of Americans got together and decided what our rights were going to be. And the job of a court is to go back and figure out what that commitment was. Now, there are lots of problems with uh, understanding rights in that way. One is simply that rights are uh, too complicated uh, to be understood as being fixed at some point in the past. But more broadly than that, the Constitution was not, in fact, a supermajoritarian commitment uh, because uh, women were excluded from political participation. Black Americans were excluded from political participation. Um, at the founding, people without property were excluded from political participation. Um, so it's trying to restore a deeply exclusive vision of what people's rights are. Again, I think that's part of what the reaction to the overruling of Roe was, is uh, the, the way the court characterized the issue was we've got to honor the commitments made in the 19th century at a time when women didn't get to vote. Uh, and that's um, not just problematic as a matter of constitutional theory, but it's just offensive in a, in a visceral sense. Where are we now? As we record this, the midterm elections are taking place in which the anti-democratic Republican movement will attempt to regain control of America's legislature and the state electoral bodies, and that will allow them to rig the 2024 presidential elections. How do we get to this point? How did the American right abandon democracy? We heard from Sarah Posner earlier. Her book, Unholy, identified the role played by America's white evangelical Christians. For nearly 20 years, I've been reporting on the religious right in the United States. And more recently than that, also the extremist right, white nationalists, uh, white supremacists. And these two groups were falling for Donald Trump. Let's be very clear. This is not an election between Republicans and Democrats. This is not a fight between liberals and conservatives. This is nothing less than an epic struggle for the future of this country between dark and light. Between the godly and the godless. Between good and evil. And we will win this fight or America will step off into a thousand years of darkness. That's Roger Stone speaking before the January 6th assault on the Capitol, using biblical language to define a supposed battle of good versus evil. America is supposed to have separation between church and state, but the Republican right increasingly seeks to establish a theocratic basis for their political choices. 
in many ways, there's really no line between the GOP and the evangelical right. I mean, they are one. Roger Stone and Mike Flynn, uh, Trump's disgraced national security advisor, they have been going on this tour to churches around the country called the Reawaken America Tour, and they're using extremely uh, incendiary, threatening Christian nationalist language. There are two things to keep in mind here. One is that the origins of the modern religious right, contrary to the popular conception, were not in the abortion decision in 1973, but in the federal government's attempt to ensure that Christian schools who had a tax exemption, our nonprofit organizations and had a tax exemption, were adopting policies that were non-discriminatory. The, the logic of that was public schools have been desegregated following Brown versus Board of Education. And so therefore, if you have a tax exemption, which is basically a subsidy from the American taxpayer, you cannot have racially discriminatory policies that would be considered illegal for a public school to have. That was their first big battle with the government, not Roe versus Wade. Over time, they became obsessed with Roe versus Wade, of course, as we all know. Now, they would say today that, of course, you know, we're not racially discriminatory, but they apply the same argument to LGBTQ rights, right? So they say that the government cannot tell us how to run our Christian institutions. So we need to have, you know, special accommodations made for us so that we can discriminate against LGBTQ people. We are gathered in the Oval Office for the National Religious Freedom Day, something very important and very special and special to me and the people that are gathered around me. So you have the right to pray. It still seems remarkable that after the genuinely pious, God-fearing Bush dynasty, that a shameless philanderer, a one-man moral vacuum like Donald Trump, would be the one to unite America's evangelicals. Trump did not adhere to the playbook that the religious right had long demanded of presidential candidates, that the candidate be a Christian, be a believer, and be able to tell a relatable salvation story, the story of how they came to Christ. And at the outset of his campaign, Trump did none of those things. Yet, white evangelicals were more enamored with him than any of the other Republican presidential candidates. There were candidates like Ted Cruz, who's a preacher's son and knows the language and speaks that evangelical language, or Marco Rubio, or Scott Walker, who had been the governor of Wisconsin, who's also a preacher's kid. But I think what was really drawing the base was that he was unafraid to say things that many of them thought but they thought that even Republican politicians were insufficiently harsh in combating. And when faced with questions about, well, how can you support this philandering biblical illiterate, they would say, sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader to lead a country at a critical juncture in its history. And uh, God chose Donald Trump. Tens of thousands of prayer meetings are being held on this day. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. We are a nation under God, and I believe God intended for us to be free. What you saw over the history of the modern religious right from the Reagan era forward was that they had organized to be a movement where they focused on registering voters to vote, mobilizing them to go to the polls. And over the course of the late 70s and 80s, as the Republican Party was consolidating this alliance, these charismatic televangelists were part of it. I mean, both Bushes had advisors who uh, really pushed them to make alliances and make friends with these various charismatic figures. The logic was, you know, you're going to reach their audience. And so they made their mark by 
basically being a massive voter mobilization movement. They sort of claimed that there was this majority of conservative Christians who really hadn't been voting. And if they would only vote, they could win elections. And then over time, it became pretty clear that even when they voted, they couldn't win elections because their views are pretty unpopular. You know, most Americans don't think that uh, abortion should be illegal. Most Americans do think that same-sex marriage should be legal. So has Donald Trump radicalized both the Republican Party and the Christian right? I think there were multiple factors contributing to the escalation towards what we saw on January 6th and its aftermath. One was obviously Trump himself, but that is a far too simplistic explanation for why the Christian right continued to support him on and after January 6th. Within the Christian right, there were a lot of changes, a kind of acceleration of uh, these new religious movements, many of which fall under the broad rubric of charismatic Christianity, followers of which believe they can receive direct revelations from God. They believe in speaking in tongues and signs and wonders, miracles, supernatural occurrences. And all of these movements talked with one another. And a central feature of many or most of them was that America is a Christian nation. It has been destroyed by secularism, and it's their duty to take dominion over the institutions that have been corrupted by secularism. You know, people would say to us, well, you know, like, obviously, it sounds pretty wacky, but is it really that dangerous? I mean, how can they achieve their goals? And of course, you know, we couldn't really imagine exactly how they could achieve their goals. But I think now we know they got lucky in 2016. And then when they couldn't win in 2020, that's when they went for Trump's stolen election lie. And then the story about Trump is that he was channel surfing in Florida and he landed on Paula White's show and really liked it and summoned her to Trump Tower later. And the rest is history. And that was in the probably mid 2000s. So I think it was on his radar that these uh, figures were important for a Republican candidate to reach out to. But I think also there's a bit of kismet there in the sense that the way that Trump, the businessman, hawked his products is not unlike the way televangelists hawk theirs. So, Father, I am privileged to come to you in the mighty matchless name of Jesus. We lift your name up, and you said you would draw all men unto you. So right now, we thank you for this wonderful White House, our president, first lady, first family administration. Now we lift up our president. You declared in Jeremiah chapter 1-5 that before he was ever formed in his mother's womb, that you had set him apart and you had ordained him. According to Psalm, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, wickedness, and darkness. So we declare every demonic network to be scattered right now. We declare right now that there is a hedge of... Christian conservatives are by no means a majority in America, and it's perhaps for that reason that they're becoming radicalised, heading into a sort of escalatory cycle with the hard-right politicians around Trump, few of whom are themselves practising Christians, but all of whom love having a ready-made political movement. White evangelicals' share of the overall population in the United States has been on the decline. Yet, it seems like they are exercising an outsized influence in our politics. So we're really experiencing a situation of a tyranny of a minority here. We're seeing little glimmers now of people realizing what's happening. After the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, we saw a surge in pro-choice voting in Kansas. Voters rejected it. So everyone is watching the midterms to see whether that will hold true in other states, that, that people will wake up to what is happening with the Republican Party. And, um, but yes, it's not that we're heading in the direction of a tyranny of, of a minority. We're there. One of the things driving religious extremism in America is the dawning realization that another American religion, the American dream and the capitalist system, appears to be on increasingly shaky ground. 
In this tyranny of the minority, we have to remind ourselves that nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything is connected. You heard from Professor Gary Gersel, scholar of the rise and fall of neoliberalism, in the first episode of this season. Here he is explaining how Ronald Reagan, that most American dreamer of modern presidents, was also the architect of its collapse at the same time as the Christian right began its rise to power. He is the key architect of the neoliberal order. He is the one pushing capitalism unbound. He brought to the White House 30 years of reading, thinking, politicking about how to release America from the heavy regulatory state that he associated with the New Deal, with social democracy, and ultimately with communist tyranny, and thus to restore America's promise untrammeled by a government telling you as an individual citizen what you could and couldn't do. But he also uh, needed another constituency in order to make the Republican Party a majority a party in political life. And uh, that constituency turned out to be the white South reeling from the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 70s and the commitment to racial equality that had become so important um, in the Democratic Party and under the presidency of Lyndon Johnson. And there were many white Southerners who were not ready to give up Jim Crow, white supremacy. And Reagan used their resentment and their anger. The 1980s became a decade of very harsh and ugly race relations in the United States. If, uh, if there are any listeners who are fans of Spike Lee, very famous African-American movie director. He got his start in the 1980s and early 1990s. He was birthed by the Reagan revolution. And if you want to get some sense for the anger that that unleashed in America, um, first among Republicans who were resentful of racial advances and then among African-Americans and their supporters who became tremendously angry about the counterattack against the civil rights, watch a Spike Lee movie or two. It just burns with anger about the effort to return blacks to this, a subordinate position in American life. Yo! You almost knocked me down, man. The word is excuse me. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Not only did you knock me down, you stepped on my brand new white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I'll fuck you up quick two times. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck gentrification. Well, huh. as I understand it, this is a free country. A man can live wherever he wants. Free country? Free country? Why don't you move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. One of Spike Lee's key themes is the toxic relationship between extreme neoliberalism and respect for those people of lower economic status and how America's black community suffers in that balance. For example, the Reagan years saw the start of mass incarceration programs disproportionately targeting minorities that doubled the prison population during his time in office. And as Reagan's neoliberal project became the dominant force globally, America's influence grew fast as its inequalities grew wide. Can you have both at the same time? Can you have cosmopolitanism and mass incarceration coexisting side by side? And my uncomfortable answer to that question is yes. And you only have to look at New York in the 1990s, which becomes this city of the world. Place became a lot safer than it was in the 1970s and 80s. I know all this because I spent a lot of time in New York in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Who was a mayor who presided over this extraordinary cosmopolitanism of America in the 1990s? One man named Rudy Giuliani, who adhered to the broken windows theory of criminality, anyone breaking a window or jumping a turnstile ought to be thrown in jail for a long period of time. No mercy, no understanding of the conditions that might have uh, prompted them to do that. So New York is prospering as a cosmopolitan center at precisely the moment when mass incarceration rates are going through the roof. And at moments in the book, I try and explore how these two things can coexist. And as paradoxical as that may seem and as unimaginable as that may seem, that is precisely what was going on. 
Gary's book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, leaves you feeling that someone has explained everything everywhere to you. But it doesn't end with Reagan. Bill Clinton took the neoliberal ideal and stretched it further, seizing the opportunity afforded by the end of the Cold War. But by the end of the 90s, the fault lines were open wide as we reach an event which rips a hole through modern liberal history. I say in the book that uh, Clinton may have done his more, even, uh, even more than Reagan. And if you look at various legislation that he gave his assent to, creating the World Trade Organization, creating NAFTA, making all of North America a free market, deregulating the burgeoning telecommunication industry, uh, deregulating Wall Street. If you begin to list all these policies, you begin to see how Clinton did as much and perhaps more than Reagan to hasten this neoliberal order to its triumphant moment. In a sense, he was acquiescence to uh, beliefs, ideas that had become so dominant in American life that he saw no way for him and the Democratic Party to succeed other than to acquiesce to core neoliberal principles. After 28 years, the Berlin Wall has effectively come down. The hamburgers here sell for rubles, worthless outside the Soviet Union. But McDonald's have an eye on what they believe could be a bright new future for the Soviet economy. And in Iraq today, the coalition forces from 30 different nations and Iraqis who love their country and who work hard with us to rebuild Iraq, to nurture its wealth for all its people, to bring prosperity and freedom. The 9-11 attack led to the decision to go to war against Iraq. Bush the Younger, George W. Bush, went from having been one of the most popular presidents after the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq to approval levels, I think, of less than 20 percent, some of the lowest recorded in, in modern history. At home, his dreams were as great as for the Middle East. He wanted to fully embrace neoliberal principles at home and also deliver a message to African Americans and Latinos that his administration was at the end of the day on their side and he was going to help them become homeowners. Uh, the only way to do this, given that he was not willing to spend government money on this, was to remove restrictions on who could be issued mortgages, accelerating the creation of a subprime mortgage market in housing. Well, you can see where I'm heading to the financial crisis of 2008, which was triggered by the investments of investors really everywhere in the world. The bubble burst the center can't hold. So ideas that have been confined to the margins as too radical on the left or too radical on the right suddenly have a chance to bid for mainstream acceptance. Protectionism, ethno-nationalism on the right of the Republican Party, socialism on the left of the Democratic Party in the figure of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were utterly irrelevant figures in American politics in the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century, and suddenly by 2016, they become the most important two movers and shakers in American politics. Uh, and this begins to get us closer to the moment we currently inhabit, uh, and America becomes a kind of battleground that it had not been for a very long period of time. To get back to where we started, America and its failing democracy, what's coming next? Jamal Green talked us through the Supreme Court's targets. Well, when it comes to the Supreme Court, there are some quite specific issues that are going to arise. And this upcoming term, the Supreme Court is going to deal with uh, race-based affirmative action. And there's a substantial chance that the court is going to say it's illegal or unconstitutional for uh, colleges and universities to take race into account in admitting people to their college classes. And that may have a dramatic effect on not just college admissions, but um, but what the professions look like uh, going forward. There will be or likely to be cases involving uh, the right to bear arms and 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 gun rights. Um, the current Supreme Court is also uh, a kind of anti-regulatory court and is very hostile to the administrative state. Uh, and a lot of lawmaking, in effect, happens through administrative agencies in the U.S. But in fact, just last year, the court made it 
uh, more difficult for the Biden administration to engage in uh, environmental regulation, also uh, struck down its uh, rules involving vaccination uh, over COVID-19. I think in a deeper sense, where a lot of the fear of where we are um, comes from goes goes beyond the specific decisions of the Supreme Court and goes to the this the idea that people in in both law and politics uh, seem to be adopting a kind of with us or against us uh, posture. And the U.S. Constitution is not well suited to um, serious norm breaking. Um, and the worry is that if you have a court that is overly formalistic and overly literalist, it's not going to um, stand in the way of serious breaches of democratic norms. I, I think if, 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 if I had to put in a nutshell what the fear is, it's, it's that. So it all comes down to a few votes in America, the midterms right now and the presidential election of 2024. Idris Kaloon. Political polarization and hatred for the other side has progressed to such a point that one of the major parties is willing to countenance the erosion of, of democracy. And that's, that's incredibly concerning. That's what's driving, I think, uh, these trends that we're seeing. And I think it's also opened people's eyes. You know, in America, we pride ourselves on the fact that we're the oldest running democracy in the world, right? And I think that what we've seen over the last few years, I think, demonstrates that that, that self-valorization was a bit incorrect, um, that the same things that happen in other places uh, are, are more than capable of happening here. And that's, that's a grim thing to, to try to understand, but also we're not at the point yet where uh, America's totally succumbed to anti-democratic forces. And so uh, that means that there's a moment of, of reflection that, that we can all undergo. You know, I think if you look back at history, um, there's a certain amount of optimism you can take in that there have been other periods in American history where, um, you know, the country's been so ferociously divided. You know, 1920, the immediate aftermath of World War I, um, with the pandemic called the Spanish flu just raging on the cusp of a Great Depression. You know, that that's a moment that comes to mind where Americans were really at each other's throats and uh, the sort of life of the republic seemed to be in, in some amount of danger. And, you know, America got through that. And it's my hope that by trying to understand what's going on now, uh, that, you know, we, we can have a, another sort of historical episode like that where we got perhaps a bit too close to the edge, but we didn't quite fall over. Um, you know, that's my that's my hope. My hope is that it's it's more like 1920 or 1964 uh, than it is like 1864. The heartening part is that, you know, so much of what we're living through, it's, it's not as if there are, you know, 60% of Americans are, are MAGA uh, Americans or something. It's so much of what we're living through is, is from a relatively contingent aspects of our electoral technology. You know, if, if we voted slightly differently, if we had different political primaries, for example, there's no way that the 2016 election would have been Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton. Um, they were the two, in some ways, the two least popular people in the whole field. Uh, and they end up being the people in the general election. That's a problem of, of political technology um, that is solvable. I think it's it's easy to look at our politics, it's easy to look at social media and think, oh my God, we're sort of irretrievably broken. But, you know, most people are able to get along with most other people. And what we need to do is figure out ways of those people being the ones running things uh, rather than people on the margins. And I think that that's doable. Um, you know, I think it's complicated. I think it's it's hard, but I'm not so despairing that I think there's no way out of this. You know, I'm I'm a professor. I believe in education. Um, I think it works. One of the solutions has to be some kind of regulation of, of information on the internet. We've got to figure out some way to do that. Um, so I think that's the first thing, and that's not 
unimaginable. That's I don't think that's you know beyond the wit of man to achieve something like that. Whether there's the political will to achieve it, I don't know, but it um, it certainly could be done. Um, so that's got to stop being a wild west of lies and and propaganda. I think we have to have an educational system that goes back to being empirical and evidence based, so that we're not teaching people be, you know because your preacher says so that that humans and dinosaurs walked at the same time. Um, we actually have to get back to to science and to evidence. We have to not be afraid of history. We have to be able to confront the truths about our own history, even when they are discomforting and they aren't very flattering. We still have to tell the truth about it. And then when we do all of that, we start to have the basis for democratic polity again, it seems to me. We have to understand that democracy is something that comes through an active engagement with civil society, and we have to renew the civil contract. We have to renew the, the foundations of trust. One of my hopes is that, um, although it's it's a dark one in a sense, but I do think that people, you know, something like the Second World War shows that sometimes you absolutely do have to go through an absolutely unimaginable crisis to remake society. But when you do go through those kinds of seismic crises, things can be rebuilt. And there are signs that we're heading into that kind of crisis. I don't welcome it, but I just think that human beings are, are maybe constituted such that we have to be forced um, to, to rebuild and to change. And, and I have a feeling we may be heading into that kind of a storm. And, and if so, that may actually, one of its few silver linings might be that it means that people lose the appetite for this kind of garbage, that they see that politics is not a game and they start to rebuild their commitment to taking politics seriously and to the importance of a, of a civil society that's based on good faith rather than bad faith. And that's what we really have to get back to. We've focused in this episode on America's declining democracy and the impact that could have worldwide. But everything is connected. And when America is run by an unhinged autocrat, such as Donald Trump, bad decisions get made. Like his decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. The net result? In September, the UN nuclear watchdog announced that Iran is on the brink of having enough enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon a direct outcome of Trump's decision. This comes at a time that Putin has been rattling his nuclear sabre as his war in Ukraine goes from bad to worse. Just as global order is breaking down, so is the nuclear global order. And at the heart of this new anarchy sat one man, responsible for Pakistan's nuclear story, but also North Korea and Iran. So join us for the next episode, where we explore the story of A.Q. Khan, the man who blew up the world. When you have leaders who have put their egos on the line that don't grasp the escalation dynamics, you increase the likelihood of nuclear use. Personalities certainly matter. If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, bonus content, and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.